Hello, Acquired LPs. Welcome to another installment of the LP Show. This is an episode where it was actually recorded for a different podcast. One of David's LPs in Kindergarten Ventures, Thomas McGannon, has a great podcast called The Unlimited Partners Show that he started earlier this year. Thomas is a dear friend of both of ours, uh, and it was very fun for me to get to listen to this episode and not participate at all. (laughs) But you're doing such a great job with the intro, Ben. Thank you. Thank you. David, what did you talk about with Thomas? Thomas pinged me about doing this and uh, asked if we could talk about our recent Vanta investment. We did a SPV in close friends of the show Vanta together and Thomas participated in that. And I said, sure. And we spent a bunch of time talking about Vanta, but we also talked all about kindergarten, about how kindergarten intersects with acquired, uh, this sort of new form of venture capital that uh, I'm experimenting with now. The non-professional venture capital is what I'm calling it. It's this rare opportunity to get to hear a GP and an LP talk about an investment thesis together. Like that's what I thought was the most interesting is you get to talk about all the very firsthand knowledge that you have from the company, from talking with Christina, from all the stuff we've done with Vanta. And then Thomas comes in as the appropriately skeptical investor and talks about how he did diligence and where there are open questions and, you know, how to rationalize price. Uh, It was great. So listeners, you're in for a treat. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mentioned based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter with that none of this is financial advice as always and without further ado on to the interview 
when you reached out at that moment, you know, I was just doing angel investing. You know, I was had gone full time on Acquired, was running that. Fortunately, one of the great unexpected true blessings, you know, of my life was, which is, it's always funny to say that, but like, I don't know how else to say it is Acquired, which I love doing and doing with one of my best friends in the whole world kind of unintentionally became a real business. And so that had kind of just recently happened. And I was just angel investing in, you know, stuff that mostly came from acquired writ large, you know, either relationships through guests on the show or what have you, but also the community and the Slack community specifically. There were a number of companies I angel invested in that I just met the founders because they DM'd me in Slack and then you DM'd me. You know, and that started this relationship, which was super cool because you were not the only input, you know, certainly, you know, my partner in kindergarten, that was a big input to it too, but you're a huge input in us deciding to raise a fund around this. And you were our first major LP to commit to that, that first sort of experiment fund. And then a large LP now in our, our second larger, more real, I don't know how you define real, but <laughs> longer term fund, let's call it that. So I'm, I'm just so appreciative to you for you know being part of the kindergarten acquired investing journey and now Vanta. It's been great. Yeah, I didn't know that. I appreciate hearing that the dribble that comes out of my mouth sometimes has a, a real world kind of decision tree impact. The decision to go in the direction of using podcasts as a tool for for making investments and building partnerships, like it just it just made all the sense in the world to me. Like when you go and you find the smartest, most creative, hardest working people speaking in real time, and you can kind of like reach in and ask questions, build relationships. It was a very obvious decision to me. And so I'm glad that what was obvious to me has built itself into a real business and a real, a real partnership. You've spent a long time as a venture investor. When you stepped out into running kindergarten, what were some of the experiences that you had that you wanted to replicate? What were some of the things that you thought that you could do better than what your prior iterations of a venture investing? Like basically, what did you see that might suck out there that you guys could help? And even though kindergarten might be a small fund, it does end up, I think, setting a lot of the, I guess I would start all businesses start as small businesses. And I think that it's a reflection of the evolution of the capital formation. Like what were some of the thoughts that you had when you guys set it up? Yeah. Well, there are a number of threads we can pull on here. You know, the first thing I would say is that I don't think I had not thought that with kindergarten, we weren't really thinking about doing things better than at least how I had done venture in the past and the traditional way of doing venture. But we were very intentionally thinking about doing things different. You know, my goal, and I think we are very much a coexisting player in the ecosystem. Life is long. You can never predict what will happen. But I would be very, very surprised if what we're doing ends up disrupting traditional venture in like a major sense. I think it's very much coexisting, you know, a complementary aspect to capital formation and traditional venture. My set of experiences at the firms I'd worked at and then also observed and been close to, I do think one thing that's universal in an investing partnership is the partnership is super important. We talked about this a lot, you know, in partners in our last episode we did together, the first Unlimited Partners episode. So that was like a very, very kind of intentional focus of you know partnering with Nat, starting slow, uh, having this be an informal thing and see where it goes. And that's been, you know, glad we went that direction. The partnership has been going great so far. 
But in terms of the different versus traditional venture, so, you know, there's just a number of elements that kind of were all coming together right around that moment that I saw. One, and certainly very critical, was the kind of enabling technology, if you could call it that, the enabling platform of AngelList and AngelList funds. The first kindergarten fund, as you know, ended up being $2.8 million total in the fund. Our intention that we set out was to raise $1 million. We wanted to create a $1 million fund, which that just would have been completely impossible. There's no way that would have worked in, in any way, shape, or form before the AngelList's you know, fund administrative platform, which had really only matured you know, enough. It, it's existed for a few years, but it was only like getting to a point where I felt comfortable as a former quote unquote professional VC fund manager being like, okay, you know, there's some compromises that, that we're going to make by doing this. Everything is a trade off, but like it's viable that we could run a fund on this platform, especially a small fund. That was certainly one that's like, okay, this is possible, (laughs) you know, and then two, this dynamic had existed for a while, but I was seeing it more and more in my angel investing and around acquired that I felt like there was room in the venture ecosystem for, like I said, complementary capital to the big traditional venture fund players. And one of the hardest parts, probably the hardest part reflecting on it about my career in quote unquote traditional venture is at the end of the day, every round is a zero sum game. Like if you're a a sizable fund, you really need to lead rounds. I did plenty of partnering and splitting rounds and all that. And that can happen on the margins. But like really, truly, if you want to be a great fund manager and a great fund, you need to lead rounds in the best companies. And the best companies tend to be very competitive. (laughs) And so it ultimately boils down to like, you know, answering a very simple question, which is why is an entrepreneur going to take your money over, you know, instead of Sequoia's or Andreessen's or Benchmark's or, you know, Founders Funds or what have you. And frankly, most people don't have a good answer to that question. (laughs) A lot of people have answers to the question, but they're not good answers. And for pretty much my whole career in venture, I don't think I had a good answer to that question. What angel investing and stepping outside of that dynamic opened my eyes to was there's this whole different world where it's not instead of, you know, it's not a zero sum game. (laughs) It's not take my money instead of Andreessen's money. It's take Andreessen's money and take my money. You know, that is really a core component of what we're doing with kindergarten. So with a million dollar fund, I mean, you're not doing this for the economics of, of the business. How do you think about the time that you put into kindergarten, the relationships that it can build with companies, with other capital partners. I I think that there's something really strategic in my mind about the way that you're building kindergarten. And I'd love to hear you riff on some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that first fund, you know, there's only so much on any dimension you can accomplish with a, a million dollar fund. That was very much intended to be an experiment of like, let's just see if some of these hypotheses we have, like, is the Angelus platform viable? Can we do this while Nat and I both have very consuming full-time jobs and not think of this as like our hobby on the side, but as a integrated part of all of that in our ecosystem, which I think is your question that we'll get into in a sec. And that experiment went well. And, you know, now as, as you know, our, our current fund is 
12 million plus and with a few SPVs, including this, this Vanta investment, you know, we're going to have significantly more capital under management. What I was seeing through angel investing and what Nat was seeing as a founder, as kind of a leading founder in, in SureTech in a specific space, was we had all of these opportunities to have relationships with other founders and other companies that were great companies that were raising great rounds from the best venture investors. And we had opportunities to A, invest capital, but also just as important B, have business and personal relationships with those companies. The easiest to illustrate on the acquired side, you know, guests we would have on the show, our sponsors on the show, we would have venture capitalists on the show and they would be doing, you know, rounds and they would want to invite us along, say, you know, GP at XYZ firm, I'm bleeding around at this company. Of course, you know, I'm going to do 70, 80% of the dollars into the round, but we leave some open for value added angels, other folks, you know, you have this great platform with acquired with the podcast with the community, we'd love to have you as part of it. So we were seeing literally like the VCs invite us into deals. <laughs> that was a very different experience than the zero sum game of before. But the companies too, you know, our, our sponsors, you know, our guests, you know, they'd want to have deeper relationships with us. They'd, they'd ping us and say, Hey, we're raising around, would you be interested in being part of it? Would love to have you or, or sometimes even, you know, we were getting folks saying who are founders saying oh you're seeing such great deal flow let me know when you're doing deals i've i'm angel invest as well i'd love to come in and be part of it too and so this is like kind of we're thinking like man kindergarten could be a way to just tie all of this together and do it at a much bigger scale than we could do with our own you know personal balance sheets when you and nat are are building the top of funnel and sorting through like what's going to make an interesting investment for kindergarten what does that process look like what do you what do you guys usually use as your way of of communicating how do you kind of articulate a priority stack so that the other person really gets like what what's most important what's what's kind of nice to have in an opportunity yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you what we don't do, which is what traditional PC firms do and what I used to do is, you know, we don't have Monday meetings. <laughs> we don't sit together and uh, <laughs> one of the firms, I won't out them, one of the firms I worked at in my career, I actually love this. This is great. They ran the whole firm on a whiteboard. So they had a whiteboard in a conference room and the Monday meetings would happen you know, in that conference room. There were doors on the whiteboard. So the rest of the week, you know, the doors would stay closed so that other people didn't see it. And literally, like the whole firm, like the you know the portfolio company, the active portfolio companies, the pipeline of deals that you know the firm was prosecuting in ranked order, it was all just there on the whiteboard and get together. And it was just funny that they did it on a whiteboard. But you know, every firm does a version of this. Of you talk about the portfolio, what the needs are, who's raising. You talk about all the deals that you know every partner is interested in, and you know what are the highest priority, and you align. <laughs> Uh, that is not what we do. <laughs> <laughs> not what we do at all. Uh, very intentionally. I don't want to claim yet, you know, we, we don't have any uh, real performance on the board. We're still very early. So I don't want to claim that this is like going to work necessarily. But when we meet and interact with companies, it's not in the context of they're raising a round, they're coming to pitch us and they're presenting you know, their deck and they're trying to raise money. <laughs> we get to know these companies and these founders in a very, very different context. To speak to my side, I get to know sponsors on acquired, guests on acquired. Like I see, I interact with them, like I interview them on the podcast. So I know them 
in in that way. And then I get to see like, how does the acquired community, how does our listener base react to these companies for our sponsors? What are the click-through rates um, for, I guess, how many people ping me after the episode and say, gosh, that was amazing. Like, I would love to connect to, you know, I can help with XYZ. How many VCs ping me and say, that was awesome. Can you intro me to the founder? I want to lead their next round, you know? So I just kind of have a natural sense. And, and then, you know, for the sponsors too, I have a business relationship with these companies. I know how they are to work with. It's just pretty like obvious to me which are the ones that we want to put money behind. I turned my camera off, but I'm I'm smiling really big right now because the data that you're pulling together through that process, like I think it's so differentiated. I think in many ways you're getting to see what it looks like when people don't think they're being watched. Like you get to see into a business's communication funnel in a way that I just, I don't think is even possible in a traditional fundraising route. No, because it's performative. Precisely. Yeah. Having the opportunity to build that authentic, and what does authentic means? It's not performative. It's something that is is spur of the moment. It's truly like what these people are what these companies are and it being like hard data if you're if you're talking about how much everyone loves you and then through the process of 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 working with founders having them as customers seeing the way that your community relates if you're seeing that that's not true then i think that you have a very special way of of making the the exhaust of your business with the podcast kind of manifest itself into what i think is like really interesting capital formation circulatory system stuff. So let's take Vanta. Let's get into Vanta as an example. I mean, it's the foremost example in our portfolio. I mean, it just, it's such a beautiful you know case study of this. When did you meet Vanta? Like, what was that time zero? Yeah, so I'll, I'll take you through the whole story. Ben and I knew of Vanta. We knew of Christina Cassiopo, the founder, for a long, long, long time. She had worked as an analyst at Union Square Ventures back in the day. This was right after I left New York. I think she joined and I joined Madrona. Never actually connected with her, but you know, she blogged and USV is so public and like it was, had of course heard about her. And then, you know, when she left USV and went to go start something and did YC, we tracked her and she's you know, still a, a prolific blogger. But we never actually met. And Ben and I, you know, were both very familiar with with her and her work. And then one day Patrick O'Shaughnessy from Invest Like the Best, who all of us here are friends with, he sent Ben and me an email and he said, hey, I invested in, in Vanta and Christina. She's, she's pretty awesome. She wants to meet you guys and she loves Acquired. Maybe on Twitter, we'd had some interactions. Like I knew that she was a fan. She loves Acquired and she wanted to talk to you guys about sponsoring. So that was how we first directly connected with her. We love all of our sponsors and many of them are like this. But she was just a dream to work with. Like we interacted directly with her, <laughs> you know, and we met other people in the company too. She was so clear about what the Vanta business is, why it's compelling for founders uh, and companies to use Vanta, why our audience of primarily founders is a great fit. She was just wonderful to do business with, as, as was the company. It was very smooth and easy. So that was the sponsorship process. And then shortly thereafter, the company was raising the round, she sent Ben and me an email and said, hey, you know, this was right as, as kindergarten was just getting going and said, hey, we're raising this round. Uh, I love you guys. I'd love to have you be part of it if, you're, if you'd be interested. No pressure. Obviously, you'd understand you'd be small checks. No big deal. And so kindergarten invested 100K out of the fund in that round. I think that was what happened next. And then we just got to know her better through the sponsorship. And she invited us to 
uh, Vanta All Hands meeting. This would have been, if I remember my timelines. In the spring of this year. I remember listening to it. I was in Singapore. It was <laughs> it was like 100 degrees, and I was on a long jog, and I was listening. It was like an All Hands meeting. It was right before you, you decided to in. start the podcast. It was, yeah, just a couple of days, actually, yes. Yeah, so she invited Ben and me. Ben was in town. Uh, it was when we did the Altimeter episode with Brad. Yes. That's right. We had told Christina that Ben was going to be in town. We'd love to get together. And she was like, actually, we're doing an all hands. Why don't you come by? And uh, we'll do a little fireside chat. I'll interview you guys. We ended up releasing it as a LP episode, but she didn't ask for that. That wasn't like the intention. We just thought it was so good. We were like, great, we'll bring the microphones and we'll record it if it ends up being good. So we got to meet the whole team in person, in the office, and just had a great and we were just so impressed with everybody. We got to meet Matt Spitz, the head of engineering, who then came up. They were doing a... Um, for our arena show that happened a couple months later in May, we invited Christina to come up and do the interview portion on stage. She couldn't make it because they were doing what we did in March, I guess it was, was the you know regularly, weekly or biweekly all hands at the office. They did their annual offsite down in Palm Springs. Like the whole company flew in from all over the world that, you know, obviously they were leading down there. Matt, who we'd met at the at the All Hands, he did a turn and burn. He flew up from the offsite in Palm Springs up to Seattle <laughs> to come to the show and then flew out that night to go back to Palm Springs. Anyway, I say all this just to illustrate the depth of the relationship and how like none of this like in my career as a professional venture investor would have been any part of the equation. And so then when they when Vanta is raising this this addition to the Series B, so the, so the round that we invested out of the fund, was Sequoia led the Series A and Kraft and, and David Sachs led the Series B in April and April beginning of May of this year in 2022. And we talked about with Christina on our sponsor slots this this season. It was literally like, I think the best round that any company has raised of, of 2022 so far. It was $110 million Series B and a $1.6 billion valuation. And so Christina pinged us kind of late this summer and said, hey, we're going to do we're going to do a second close of that round because a bunch of LPs and in the VCs are interested in, in putting in more more money. You know, if you have any interest, would you all like to be open to put in more money? And I was like, well, probably not out of the fund because it's you know, we're small. It's not our strategy. But let me ping our LPs and see if we could have interest in putting an SPV together. And you know, hence, Thomas, why don't you take the story from here? I'll be honest. When the update came across that you guys were doing it an SPV here. I, I was going to let it go by. I, I was busy with other things. We would not be talking if you hadn't reached out and said, Hey, Thomas, I think, I think that this, this suits you guys really well. I think you should, you should take a look. I mean, I had definitely been familiar with Vanta through your relationship as them being a customer, same with a lot of, a lot of podcasts. And again, like just kind of referring to the network that gets built and, and the kind of liquidity that, that facilitates amongst, you know, talent and customers and capital was something that you did a really nice job kind of helping me get focused on this. It came at a really good time because a lot of the conversations that I've been having with my clients, the families that I work with, they're asking for cybersecurity investments. They they see the breaches, they see the compounding nature of the, the problem and the value that is encapsulated in a secure digital estate and wanting to invest in that. Personally, I've struggled a lot with cybersecurity investments. There aren't that many high quality, like generational companies 
built here. A lot of times it's because people try to build force fields and building a force field. It's just an ephemeral advantage that, that you could potentially build. And so the nature of the investment started to look really attractive because it was something that, that I, I knew I was being asked for as I started to do my, my due diligence across my network, reaching out to general partners that, that have lots of insight into their customer subset, you know, fast growing, a lot of YC backed companies that are just getting to that point where they're winning customers. And this is, this is table stakes. This is, this is an expectation. Hearing some of those founders say, Oh my gosh, like Vanta is a, is a verb. All of our portfolio is using it. It really started to kind of wet my enthusiasm because I, I thought that you could build what initially today is a, is a product company with SOC 2 compliance, but eventually I think, I think it can evolve into, into a platform company as in. So anyways, yeah. We're, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes in yet. We haven't even talked about what Vanta is as a company. But yes. We should probably do that. Let's- this is also what got me so excited. You know, I had way back when I was at Madrona in Seattle, I had done some, some cybersecurity investing, you know, gosh, that was like 2014, 2015. And I felt the same pain as an investor that you're describing, Thomas, which is like, clearly, this is a massive market, huge need that any company writ large, any person, any company needs you know, cybersecurity. It's so obvious the need. It's perfectly but, ubiquitous. Everyone needs it. Yes. But the problem with the industry that I found in you know investing, and I think has mostly still been true to this day is that it's just all, you know, it's all FUD. It's all like building force fields, as you say, you know, it's, it's teams coming out of the NSA or the IDF in Israel, you know, and these companies end up either looking like services companies or, you know, they build the latest and greatest force field that works until, you know, something else comes along that's better. <laughs> and so it's just this very difficult space to build actual durable products and moats in. And then here along comes Vanta. Vanta is explicitly, Christine would be the first person to tell you, we are not a security company. Like we're not from the NSA. We're not, you know, we're not building force fields here. They are a security monitoring company. It's this had this aha moment for me in getting to know them and the product and seeing the uptake in our community and the the rapidity of you know clicks on the links in the show notes, but that you know customer adoption and they're adding hundreds of customers every quarter. It's very much like a data dog type situation. Like they're not building the force fields, they're monitoring the force fields, and everybody needs that. The topic of observability was one that really dominated the last year that I spent as a as a public hedge fund manager. These are companies like Datadog, like Splunk, like New Relic, AppDynamics. Having visibility into a digital estate, knowing that that metadata that speaks about the the software that you're working with, that speaks about the process that is being run. You know, I, I think about like the <laughs> the internet as this vast trove of data, and you need. Some kind of process of of synthesizing and curating, and that that's what I think podcasts are so cool. Well, in a similar way, monitoring, observability, seeing how your software components, especially in an increasingly fragmented, services based, very ephemeral way that we build and run software, the the importance of of having monitoring instrumented throughout your organization and the fact that like this is getting to a scale where human hand-drawn whiteboard Excel processes, screenshots, it just doesn't 
work. It's breaking at an accelerating rate. It really gets me excited looking at, you know, I mentioned earlier how I became so in love with software was, was hearing the, the Salesforce journey, the way that the CRM has been stood up as a, as a pillar of kind of data insight action and believing that as software eats the world, you're going to have multiple other platforms grow and evolve their point of view for how this problem gets solved and where to insert themselves. I found it really compelling. It has to be software at this point. I mean, by the time this episode comes out, our uh, acquired episode on AWS will will be out. Part two of the Amazon saga. <laughs> Part two of, I'm sure, many to come over the years. But the story of AWS. At this point, you know, AWS is just one cloud provider. It's just the infrastructure layer you know, the base layer for building, you know, I say a a technology product, but really, you know, anything, (laughs) everything runs on AWS these days. You know, there's other cloud providers out there too, and lots of businesses of any scale use multi-cloud. AWS has hundreds of different services, and that's just the infrastructure layer. So like, understanding like, are all of those services, you know, do you have them configured correctly? Are the right access protocols on there? Who has access to the data? And like, that's the infrastructure layer. Now layer on the like vast diaspora of application and software, you know, middle layer products <laughs> between your infrastructure and then your end product. You know, you've got hundreds to thousands, literally thousands of different software products that all have access to data that all have security vulnerabilities that weave together to comprise the products and services of like every industry in the world right now like there's no way that a team of humans can keep track of that no and i think that one of the pieces of this investment thesis which is to say like investing in compliance automation broadly that I really like is as I look at some of the notable breaches, I was listening to the Okta earnings call yesterday, and there's a lot of conversation about about some of the customer breaches that they've had to deal with. And it's not Okta software that we're principally talking about. We're talking about software that is in their supply chain. And so it's like, you know, when you come home from school and and be like, mom, like I was doing this, but the other kids were doing that. Like (laughs) you're responsible for what those other kids are doing in your cloud software estate. And so what expectations can you put in place to ensure that the cloud services that you're bringing in are are being run in in a compliant defensible, uh, and also like in an organization where they have a culture of compliance. I think one of the things I really enjoy doing with an investment thesis is talking to consultants like the Capgeminis or Deloitte's that have seen, you know, dozens of implementations of security programs and can talk about like what as a people process technology, what works and what doesn't. And the, the thing that I kind of realized in doing these calls through, through, through Tegas was that Another great friend of acquired and unlimited partners. What Mike and Tom have built there is so cool, and and the the acquisition of of Canalyst, like I really think that that's the generational financial service provider technology layer. It's going to be very very cool what, what they're what they're building. But in any case, in in talking to these experts that that Tegas sets up, you really uh, come to appreciate that the the best that you can hope for when it comes to cybersecurity is to have a culture of compliance, and that is something that gets not 
you know, snapshot in time once a year. It's something that is continuous. It's something that is part of the DNA of the way that you build, of the ways that you communicate. And by adopting something like Vanta, uh, and there are other competitors and that, that's something that as an investor, I, I take very seriously. But I think that this, this layer could, could eventually be a, a very large kind of pillar in the, in the digital estate. One thing we've learned, I've learned in the past several years, I catch myself whenever I'm about to say like something is inevitable or I can't imagine any future where this doesn't exist. I'm like, oh, well, none of us know anything. (laughs) And strange outlier events can come to pass, as we all know now. But I think it is very, very likely in the future that this is a very large category of software because it's very hard for me to imagine again never say never but it's very hard for me to imagine that you're not going to use software to do this yes i don't think that there's any question about whether this is an automated instrumented solution i think for me at the foundational layers like when i when i make an investment i like to think about it like jeffrey moore has kind of his stack of of what a business is at the, at the low level it's it's the infrastructure so like what are the first principal inputs that go into the world that your business is executing against and so here like this is the infrastructure layer is software eating the world and and a cloud uh, dominated software estate what sits on top of that is a business model. So what are the what are the products that you're building to serve to your customer base? How does that draft on the wave of of what what's occurring at the infrastructure layer? And then on top of that is is the operating model. Like how how are you going to market? How are you communicating and pricing and creating and capturing value? And so at the at the low level, the infrastructure of what compliance automation executes against, I don't have any real concern there. Where where I start to ask questions is this opportunity will exist. This is a when, not if. But is this going to be a compliance automation company that captures this kind of ingest and you know process communication layer, or is it going to be something else? Is it going is it going to come from a monitoring type solution like a a data dog? Is this tool something that can be built and appended into like a a service now perhaps? Because right now, what Vanta is like it's it's a tool, it's a product. It, I think that there's a, a really exciting future where it does mature into a a platform, and then it has a lot of value that I'd love to, maybe we can talk about about grading of this uh, towards the end, but whether Vanta or one of its competitors owns this opportunity, they created the category, but they are not guaranteed to win it. And I think that when you look at the depth of, of integration, the sophistication of the data and the flows and the processes that other businesses in orthogonal parts of the data journey have, there is a real question in my mind whether this is a is an opportunity that's captured by the players that are creating this category. People who are familiar with Vanta are probably wondering why we haven't brought this up yet. SOC 2 and compliance. Probably these days, if you do hear Vanta on an acquired episode or an invest like the best episode or out there in the world, or if you use Vanta, your company, which if you don't, you should, you are probably using it to get SOC 2 compliant. And that's a really interesting kind of aspect of how this market has developed and what the go-to-market that, that Vanta pioneered there are these security compliance standards of which SOC 2 is the kind of broadest and most well-known that most businesses are going to want to have. And the way before Vanta, 
and its competitors, but Vanta was the first uh, to do this, the way a business got SOC 2 compliant was you hired some auditors, either independent you know, auditors or Deloitte or uh, uh, you know, Accenture or somebody to come if you're a bigger business, to come in and audit your security <laughs> infrastructure and protocols and all of your software supply chain. And then they would issue a compliance report and say you are okay you are you know now SOC 2 compliant same thing for HIPAA and healthcare or GDPR in Europe for data practices what Vanta said is we can actually use that as our go to market channel of you know we will be the software product that won't actually do you know you'll still have an auditor that we partner with or you bring in come in and like do the certification of you know to get the compliance certificate but rather than Having you know a team from Deloitte come parachute into your you know company for a couple of weeks and rummage around, do all of the work you know via software and automate it, and then the compliance gets much much easier. At least the burden of compliance for you as a company, and especially ongoing in future years when you renew. And so that's been the go to market strategy. I think this is super cool because eventually we want to, and I think Vanta you know and the whole industry and its competitors can evolve into that big vision we were talking about a minute ago of security monitoring, continuous security monitoring, you know, the data dog for security, quote unquote. But I don't think data dog or service now or whomever, uh, certainly over the past several years, they haven't been willing to say like, oh, we're going to go like get into the you know compliance certification business. You know, we're going to go do SOC 2 audits. Uh, so it's been this cool little insulating bubble that they've been able to build the business up within. Now, will all of that change now as Vanta's and, and its competitors have gotten clearly like this is a very big market <laughs> they've gotten quite big i'm sure those larger companies that you mentioned that we've been talking about are, are paying attention to the space but it was a really elegant you know kind of way to start the company yes i think that initially when i started my research and i heard people say well and these are investors that had, had invested earlier in the company and have been observing it for a while they said gosh like we, we really would like for this whole process to be automated. I mean, what Vanta does is they'll, they'll automate up to 90% of your processes. But at the end of the day, like SOC 2 compliance is an AICPA certification. These are auditors that are crafting the, the, the rules. And then I spoke with somebody that's, that's, that does security audits. He talked about how people are looking for the answer and an auditor will always tell you that there's no way that you can bring me the answer when I first sit down. The answer is found through the process of examining what kind of a business that you have and how you're approaching your compliance frameworks. And so I think that, you know, as I, as I look out at potential competition from other incumbents, I do think that the fact that this isn't completely automated, the fact that this is an auditor and chief risk officer focused sale and not as much like the developer bottoms up, prototype this and run with it. Well, she made a very smart decision that none of the other early competitors to Vanta did, which was that she in the early you know, Vanta as a company you now, they partner with the auditors. The Vanta value prop is not, we are going to take all of these human auditors and we're going to turn all of this into software. And, you know, the early competitors, this is what they were saying. Like, all these audit firms are gone. Like, this is all going to be, you know, you're going to click buttons and then you're going to get your audit. What Vanta said is, we are going to turn into software the plumbing, the monitoring, the work, the tools, and then we'll partner with you know, auditors and audit firms, and they will do the audit. Because as you said, the audit is a human opinion. <laughs> and that was the way the industry worked. 
so what that did was two things was one, you know, it didn't piss off the auditors a, because it was, would threaten their business, you know, the, the, the way their other early competitors, you know, was a threat to their business. But also like, like you said, like it's actually not the right way to do things with, with the audits themselves of, to make that totally software. You know, the auditors had a very good point on that. The other thing it did though, you know, it's funny you're talking about the go to market. It enabled, especially for SOC 2, all of these companies, younger companies, startups or younger and smaller companies, using Vanta enabled them to go get SOC 2 audits in a way that they couldn't before. Because like if you know, you're a starter, you're going to bring in Deloitte or even you know, an individual solo practitioner, you're going to bring them in into your company for weeks and weeks and like have them audit your security practices. Like, no, of course you're not going to do that for cost reasons, if nothing else. But with Vanta, you can say like, oh, no, no, all the actual like work, the tool, we just do that with software now. <laughs> and we can just buy Vanta and then have an auditor come in and we can be a seed stage, series A stage startup. And- How do you think that Vanta will perform in the current environment? The weather conditions that we're all uh, managing through. Yes. So far, it's been good. They've been hitting plan through 2022, which is great, or even slightly exceeding, which is great. Once you start getting compliance certifications, especially SOC 2, you're not going to (laughs) stop. It's very hard for me to get a match, unless like a business pivots significantly, where you're like, well... I have been getting SOC 2 compliance. I don't think I'm going to do that in the future. Like if you work with any customers or partners of any scale, especially in anything financial services related, which is pretty much every product and service in some way, shape or form these days, you're going to need this. And and certainly you're not going to take it away. <laughs> uh, your partners and customers would be very unhappy about that. Like it's the risk to your revenue is huge if you were to take it away. So I think it's a very sticky product. I, I think the risk in this weather climate to, as you say, to Vanta is if a bunch of their customers, you know, go out of business or pivot to to something else, which, you know, I'm sure will happen. And unless things completely stabilize or, or you know, turn back up in the coming months, which, which could happen. But if that doesn't happen, if we continue into sort of a protracted, uh, challenging weather conditions for the economy and for startups, you know, for sure, that will start to happen, I think. How do you think about it? This was a, a big piece of, of, of how I thought about making the investment. I think that by working with companies who need SOC 2 compliance as a way to um, earn their revenue, like this is a revenue enabling product or service for, for their customers to purchase. I like that a lot. As I've been listening to public earnings calls, there's a lot of focus on rationalizing the existing footprint. And so if you're a usage-based model, something you know like a Datadog or a Snowflake, MongoDB talked about how in their cloud native or digital native customer group, they, they were seeing some, some slowdown, just the, the rationalization of that footprint. But the binary nature of do you have SOC compliance, do you not? And is it a critical piece to whether you can generate revenue? Like, I really love that mission critical nature. I think one thing that Vanta does really well that I would love to see them continue to perfect is, is finding ways of, of standing up SOC 2 compliance certification as an announceable event for their customers, like celebrating that and also like affixing the name Vanta to that achievement, making Vanta a verb that that states, we take this seriously, this is part of our compliance 
culture, I think that that is a way that they can both help drive customer success, but also deepen the the commitment at that organization to Vanta. One of the individuals that I spoke with through Tegas uh, used to work for one of their competitors. He's now the director of compliance for a publicly traded learning company. And now I think what's what's important to remember here is like this is somebody who has built a career building the 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 processes and practices and, and manuals for how this works. So what, what's easy and achievable to this individual might be like very very difficult for for others that haven't been so focused. But his his opinion was. What Vanta is right now is a system of record. So you go to Vanta to see that your compliance processes are, are functioning the way that they ought to. But that is something that, you know, with the right kind of, of skill and focus can be taken in house. Like once you have a successful SOC 2 compliance program put into place, it's not rocket science to internalize some of, some of that, the product that, that Vanta builds. Now, where it becomes impossible to pull out is if it can graduate to a system of engagement where through automation, through dashboarding and, and really robust integrations, the organization throughout has Vanta on their screens where, the, where it becomes something that as a methodology of a, you know, maybe not daily, but weekly, monthly use um, that people are spending more time in, in Vanta, which is just going to be a very necessary piece for them to build on to graduate to, to platform. But I think that for me, like the real determinant of success for Vanta and for the investment is going to be whether they can make that transition. I agree 100% and I suspect Christina and the company would also agree 100% with that. I think that's true of probably any you know, software platform, right? Like if you want to become a platform, you need to become, I like how you say that, go from you know, a system of record is great, but you need to go to a system of engagement. You know, that's what Salesforce is, right? Right, exactly. Most businesses, like, it's really hard to, to build a platform out of the gate. I think if you, if you say platform in, in V1 of your business, like you're probably, probably not going to find success. So you do have to go through this process of nailing a, a specific use case, really understanding your customer base and what their key, you know, mission critical pain points are. And I think that like that, that in terms of, of discovery and identifying like what kind of a business that you're building, like that is such a key low level piece that's, that's, that's so necessary. And then as you're spinning this up, being aware of like, what's my next act, my second, third, fourth act going to be here? And I loved you and Andrew and, 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 and Howard Marks talked about as the innovation cycles shorten, the durability of existing competitive advantage narrows significantly. And so historically, having a system of record business would have inured you to like a decade of owning a, a specific use case. Things are just moving too quick. <laughs> yeah, not anymore. Not anymore. That's a hundred percent where you know why I say I think Christine and the company would agree with you. You know, their um, the product focus now is uh, is on building out Vanta Trust reports, which which is exactly that. Like Datadog for security, you know, is a good you know shortcut analogy. But what does it look like to have a system of engagement for this space? You know, it looks like both internally at the company for monitoring, but also 
externally for your partners, for your customers. You know, here's Vanta Powered Dashboard, a trust report from Vanta that shows you in real time what are the security practices, what's the data access, you know, <laughs> red, green, yellow, like what's the state of all of my services internally, what's the state of my software supply chain, and just sharing that and being, you know, open. You mentioned earlier that that you've had Christina on to talk about the fundraising process. People have talked a, a good deal about like her skill as a leader. What for you makes Christina somebody that that earns this like ah she's special designation? I don't think you can ever underrate someone who you want to be around, do business with. Every time I interact with Christina, like I come away. This is a classic thing that VCs say. And I think they say it as this shortcut because it's, you can't really put your finger on what are the components of it, but she's you know, the classic founder. Like if I were ever to go work for somebody, she's like one of the few people, like I would, I would be you know, very happy to work for Christina. So I think that like that is certainly one element of it. I think the other element is like, you know, I'm very impressed with her as a founder in that she went and you know, pioneered this space. Like Vanta was the first company. She was the first person to see this like in a very very non-obvious way like she was on a very traditional silicon valley path you know like she went to stanford and then she went to work at union square ventures right like which is in new york not silicon valley but like a very silicon valley firm (laughs) even though it's in new york this hallowed position and then she went to work for for dropbox uh well she left usv to to tinker with some products and then went to work for dropbox in dropbox's heyday then she goes and starts this security compliance monitoring company <laughs> with no security background and like doing SOC 2 audits. Like, you know, I remember at the time, like to the extent that I like saw what she was doing and focused on it, you know, I felt this way a little bit, but I didn't even focus on it. I'm sure most people were like, Christina, what the hell are you doing? Like, you know, you should go be working at Uber or Airbnb or something or like starting, you know, some, you know, God knows what. It was just so not obvious that a this space was going to be big, that there was you know defensible value to be built here, and so you know then she she did Y Combinator, uh, the company did Y Combinator, and they raised a, a little bit of money. I think I could get this wrong. I think I believe Pear led the seed out of Y Combinator. Great, great folks. Love the people at Pear. Uh, known Mar for a long time. We were on a board together back when I was at Madrona. Anyway, and then like. They just went and operated for years, like years. <laughs> and everybody forgot about them. And in the meantime, like they were just executing, right? And during the phase when so many companies were raising so much money without having product market fit or anything, you know, she stayed so lean, like didn't raise any more money after YC, got to over 10 million. I believe she got to 13 million in ARR, you know, for the company before she raised another dollar which was that first big round from Sequoia last year. Like when that happened, it was like, holy crap, we were all, you know, to the extent that we were wrong about Christina and wrong about Vanta, like, boy, were we wrong, you know? (laughs) And so I just love that, you know, like, it's not often you see the combination of somebody who is like genuinely great, like, I would love to work for you. And you can be so like contrarian and like, you'll be willing to do all the correct but non-obvious things that great founders need to do. Right now, there's a lot of conversation about like durable growth and what constitutes durable growth. And and I think that as as I try and ask myself like what are the what are the companies with the the people and the products that are best suited to really understand and internalize and practice like the inputs that go into achieving durable growth for me, 
like it, it's hard to do that without having been built on a notion of scarcity. So my favorite companies, so like Tony Shu, like the, the notion at DoorDash, the notion of one percent improvements or Cloudflare, thinking about the scalability and and that they would need to achieve for for their business to to kind of achieve its full vision and 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 what that required from a network speed and security perspective. Vanta having been a functionally bootstrapped business from zero to $13 million in ARR, I think for me, like that is, that is a really critical component to answer for myself as an investor. They're, they're raising now a growth round. They're going to be receiving, you know, north of $110 million of capital. That's many multiples. How much did they raise in their series A? Was that 50? Yeah, 50. 50. Yeah, yeah. So in any so, case, you know, within a year and a half, they'll raise yeah, 200 million yeah, plus. Exactly. That's the point that they're going from very like cash constrained to upwards of $200 million of, of, of total capital coming into the business. And knowing that they have the uh, ground level appreciation for the, for the value of a dollar and building in, I think in, in the most recent uh, interview that you did with, with Christina talking about this round, just how they're taking really a scientific approach to building their sales reps and the efficiency. Weekly cash reports. <laughs> Precisely. How many, I don't know too many companies in 2021 that were raising the kind of money that, you know, which was a lot of companies that were doing weekly cash reports. You win races in the turns, not in the straightaways. 2021 was a straightaway. Like no one was winning a race last year, but this year when things get more challenging and when communicating that value to your customers really has such a, a higher bar, you, you just hear everywhere the discussion about elongating sales cycles, which is really people spending a lot more time asking themselves, is this product or service really, really worth it? And I think that in order to communicate that to your customers, I think that it's sort of something that you have to practice inside your, your, your organization. And so it does give me a lot of confidence that pouring in this amount of growth capital, um, and that being, you know, a couple times the, the inflow of investment arsenal that the competitors are raising, I think that that does really portend getting ahead in, in this turn in the market. We're both now very biased to uh, love Vanta and uh, you know want to talk it up and everything, and um, that's great as we should be, you know. But to be grounded in data for a little bit, you know, opinions are opinions. I love it. Like Sequoia, you know, used to have this great saying about uh, they're so good at changing their minds about things when when the data is there. You know, they'd meet companies early and they'd be like, I don't know, is this durable? Like, can this be a big thing or whatever? And then like, I think this was a Leone line. Like at a certain point in time, like you can't. The data doesn't lie. Like if the revenue keeps coming in and keeps growing, you know, you got to go with it. So in Q2 of 2022, you know, like that's that's the current weather climate. You know, <laughs> it arguably even worse than than you know here in Q3 2022. Fanta's customer growth accelerated. They added over 300 customers in Q2 2022. Like, what more can you say? <laughs> you know. <laughs> The metric that I cared the most about here is, and I think maybe it was the first question I asked you is, what's Q2 going to do and how does that compare with the Q4 to Q1 sequential growth? Because you're absolutely right. This is data that's coming in in real time and seeing how that rubber is meeting the road, the numbers don't lie. I don't know what the future is going to hold uh, from a market perspective or from a uh, product perspective or from a customer expectation perspective, but having a team that is data 
data driven and has kind of that again that principle of scarcity woven into its culture i think is as really important and and you're right this has been a conversation about like why it is that we're enthusiastic to invest in in vanta i i will concede that I, i've listened to interviews that some of the founders of of competing businesses have given some of the the the, the reasons for being their background the credibility that they have as as founders it is not a foregone conclusion at all that vanta runs away with this segment. There are other other businesses uh, that are growing very quickly. And so I think that just because you create a category does not mean that you own it. And it's going to be really fascinating to watch. Were there any dynamics with this round, the participation, like maybe the way that I'd ask it is when you come in and you look at a business and the round that they're raising, like what are some of the questions that you ask that about, like what's being accomplished here? What are we bringing to the company that we didn't have before? And what might be worth t- talking about that here? Kind of back to the beginning of our conversation here about kindergarten and if it's interesting later we can talk about uh nat or or you should have nat on the show talk about how he operates within it you know for me into acquired it really like like i said intentionally from the very beginning both for personal reasons just personal preference reasons and that i thought there was an opportunity like i don't want kindergarten to be to look like or be or feel like or operate like a traditional vc like i've done that you know (laughs) and and that's like it's great like that's a great you can make a lot of money. There's great. They, they serve a great role in the ecosystem, and the great ones are truly, truly great. But this line of thinking—not that I think this is you know where you're going with this specifically—but like of like the deal dynamics. Like I genuinely don't care about deal dynamics anymore. It's one of the things I hated about being a traditional VC, especially at a at a you know. While I love the firms I work with, they're great. Part you know, it wasn't. We were always fighting Sequoia. Like I said, that question, Sequoia, interested. Like you always had like that question, just nagging, always there. Was like, why is a great founder going to take my money, our money over? Name your top tier firm, uh, and then the question that you ask yourself is like, a okay, if I'm competing with them, why would the founder take my money? But the other, really, even more insidious question truly more insidious that you end up asking all the time is like, are they taking my money? Cause the great VCs passed, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I just hated all that shit. I think about the Groucho Marx line every day of, um, you know, I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me. I think that investing with you, working with your network and and kind of the supportive nature that a lot of of kind of what you bring to bear represents. It helps me answer that question in a way that I don't get to very often, which is to say like, I am, <laughs> I am joining the club that wouldn't have me. I'm just going on the shoulders of someone else. Like, I think that that's, that's why I thought that partnering with you as I built out this practice of working with family offices would be a really, uh, high value, like node in our network to, to, to build out. And, and it, and it, and it definitely, yeah. definitely has. Ah, because that dynamic is so baked into the traditional venture ecosystem. It's kind of like the, you know, fish asking like, you know, what's water and like, Oh yeah. The David Foster Wallace always, always love a David Foster Wallace reference. Totally. Right. Like, so, you know, me yanking myself out of that, uh, it's really open my, anyway. So the way I think about all this, like, I, I truly don't care about deal for better or worse. I do not care about deal dynamics. You know, when I want to invest in companies, it's because I meet them through acquired. They're great partners. I like what they're doing. You know, like all, all all those other reasons we talked about at the top of the show. You know, and here in this Fanta situation, you know, the Dale Dynamics are like, you know, 
Kraft and, and David Sachs, like you know, one of the great SaaS investors of all time, like led this this round in the depths of the Q2 crash of 2022. And like this was, you know, I think they, they've talked about they didn't say the name Vanta, but like they talked about this deal several times on on all in episodes at the time. You know, and Sachs referenced it a bunch. I don't know why I didn't say the name anyway, but um, anytime that somebody talks their book, it's just an open uh, flank for one of the. Well, actually, you know what? You're right. I feel like especially on all in, you know, I love those guys. One of the things that's so great about that podcast is the dynamics and the tension between all of them. But you're right. They don't talk their book there because they just like they pillar each other when they do, which is fun. I love <laughs> that they do the podcast. But that to me is it kind of highlights like what what I what I don't think is present in, in most partnerships. Like when I, whoever it is that we're doing business with any interview that I do, any investment, any introduction that, that I take, I genuinely want the very best for every person that I'm coming across. Like I want to find ways of like, Oh, you've got a Sunday. Let's put some whipped cream and cherries on top of that. (laughs) And when you have, when you have like a weekly commitment to something that is like, fundamentally imbued with friction and competition at a layer that I don't think is a positive sum creating. It's just like, huh, I love the instruction and the conversation that that comes from it, but I'm going to build my business and frankly, my life a little bit different. Obviously, it works for the besties on all in like, oh my gosh, the show's been successful. Each of their firms have been successful. Anyway, all that aside, so Sachs led the deal. And, and then so like the way all this kind of came about, it was always written to the docs. They were thinking about it. You know, there's LP interest. But then kind of as the summer went on and 2022 you know, went on, Christina decided, I don't want to you know, quote her, but I had a bunch of conversations with her about this. I think she just decided, you know, like you said, there's there's competitors out there in the space and, you know, this great round is happening. And just I think just kind of came to the conclusion. She was like, you know what? Let's like get as much capital in as possible <laughs> right now. Let's just fill up the war chest. Not in a like, 2021 way of like, oh, is, you know, I'm some, you know, a hot company, you know, like may or may not even have product market fit yet. Let's just, you know, raise money to raise money of like, but no, like, hey, this is a new climate. There's competition out there growing fast. Like, you know, this is a great valuation and, you know, great round. I got great folks around the table. Let's like, now's the time to actually fill up the war chest with as much money as possible to go out and, and, you know, work like hell and, execute and be the be the winner you know be the system of engagement of record in the space so that that's kind of how this all came together when you see craft lead a deal like i, I don't know if you've done business with them or, or participated in like a lower we've level. done a few okay. other deals earlier yeah. stage what, deals like what them, yeah. can you characterize like what involvement that craft has what does a craft investment look like i've never worked with them before I could speculate. It would be pure totally. speculate. Like I, I don't know. We can, we can <laughs> we don't, especially with you know how kindergarten. It's not like I sit on boards with them. Yeah, with these I know. I think. I think. <laughs> oh, just another non-obvious thing that when I yanked myself out of the professional, I use professional as just the term for like the traditional way. But traditional is better. Venture ecosystem of you know board seats. Like it's just I had a conversation with a really great you know older generation investor who is just wonderful, great investor, well known, all of the things. Uh, during that period. And he said to me, he's like, board seats are you, you, <laughs> one of the like, you know, paradoxical, like anti-secrets of beasts. Like everybody is so, there's all this ego and status of wrapped up in like, who's on your board? Do I, you know, I want to join the board of this company. I lead this round, blah, blah. And it's like, 
there's no upside to being on the board. Like on it's on every dimension. Like there's no upside for you as personally being on the board. You're exposing yourself to a lot of risk, but there's no upside with the founder relationship either. You create this like quasi adverse, you know, not adversarial, but like it complicates the relationship. He's like, you, you know, I, he's like, I found in my career, I have much more influence on the company. I can be much more, <laughs> you know, involved, happier, all the dynamics, not being on boards. I was like, ah, Yes, you're right. Why did I ever want to be on all these boards? <laughs> because of credentialing. <laughs> yeah, credentialing, exactly. Which is exactly. which That's is a totally I mean. normal thing to want. But I I, com- I completely agree with you. Like, if I were to sit down and say, "Hey, David, like, let's have a really nice conversation. We'll share a lot of, about each other and our hopes and fears." And oh, by the way, I have a loaded gun that I just set on the table here that I, you know, not only have the opportunity to potentially use, but in, in many ways, like have the responsibility, which is to say, like being a board member means that you are responsible. You have, you have, a, you have a duty to uh, ensuring that a business is performing to what you think is, is, is the highest and best use. And that's a really difficult uh, responsibility. It really set changes to, the dynamic of the relationship. It, it absolutely <laughs> does. I think. I think that that that's something that I am l- learning and and really appreciating the difference between. I'm on the board of of, of one company. I have a great relationship with that founder. I think it helps that uh, maybe also by er- investing at the seed stage when you're working with these companies, joining the board might be a little bit different because you know that their well being supporting the founder is. The job to be done by the board. But once you get to 50, 60, 100, 500 million dollars of revenue, that relationship gets a lot more complex. Or, or heaven forbid, a public company. Absolutely. But of course, they're great board. I had great board relationships with many of the founders that I was on their boards. But the, the point that this investor was making to me that just like totally hit home you're right. Like there is a time in your career or a time in a company's life, there's situations where it makes sense. And that investor, you know, he takes board seats. It's not like he doesn't. In general, like if if the situation doesn't require it on like it's generally better not to be, you know. Anyway, your question was about craft. So all of this is from afar, arm's length. But I think what they are you know, certainly what they market themselves, I think what they're quite good at is like they're they're just really plugged in on what the attributes of great SaaS companies are, particularly around investing and valuations and you know multiples and all that and like they're they like have very like they're very data driven on that stuff well that i've never actually studied all of the data it'd be, it'd be interesting to do so but the belief the the common belief that i i generally think is true is in b2b and SaaS products like that that works pretty well and the consumer is is different and more hit driven and you know more unexpected things can happen but yeah i think crass just like really good at that as are other folks like emergence too you know it's funny you know emer- i love emergence we're, we're super close with them too unacquired they're a little more qualitative they're a little more liberal arts to crafts uh you know engineering approach to uh SaaS investing uh and that's okay that works great for them too but that's what I think of when I think of craft. It's really helpful in in my situation, my seat where I'm I'm bringing investments. I am not a professional investor in the way that that craft is. I'm not a professional investor in the way that a real estate manager, a private equity fund is. Like I have to operate by way of proxy. And so in this environment where I'm getting asked for cybersecurity investments, I have some beliefs on what what 
good businesses might look like here, what lower quality businesses have historically been. And then when I think about the people running the business and the, and the, and the investors getting on the cap table, I really have to like lean on years of experience and past performance doesn't indicate future returns. Like that's total bullshit. (laughs) Winners keep winning. And so for me being able to bring, (laughs) at least in venture, in venture past performance is definitely a predictor. I think it's increasingly a predictor of future returns, just as the benefits of scale become more and more pronounced. You know, I, I really do believe that businesses as in an internet age particularly skew to perfect commodities or perfect monopolies. I, I think that that's a very long-term fullness of time observation. But nonetheless, for us to be able to co-invest with some of the like longest tenured, most rigorous B2B focused SaaS investors, like it's a real, it's a really great opportunity that you've given me to kind of come in and step in make this investment because it's it's really the the product that I had hoped that I would be able to deliver like when I started this journey when I reached out to you and said hey I've got this thesis on on podcast networks as a way of building an investment um, <laughs> yeah. program ah that's so cool maybe it's worth spending a little time on that's the deal dynamics of the kindergarten's SPB here this deal the um, maybe without getting into specific numbers but for me and Nat, you know, it's going back to sort of everything I've been saying all along here, a little bit on our first episode and the LP episode that we, Nat and I did with Ben, where we talked about things about kindergarten a little bit, mostly about kettle, but a little bit about kindergarten. You know, we're not trying. We're Hopefully it's clear that it's genuine. Like I'm not saying this as like a faint, uh, like we're genuinely not trying to build a traditional venture firm. <laughs> genuinely, genuinely, I want to do acquired. Nat wants to do kettle. Those are the things. And kindergarten is like our, you know, the part of that ecosystem flywheel, you know, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, we're not interested in scaling assets under management to scale assets under management and scaling, you know, management fees to scale management fees and building a team in charging premium carry, you know, which is where I was going to get into here. Like, you know, hopefully we can provide a great investment product to LPs like you. And what clicked for me in this process, I'd sort of like maybe intuited this a little bit than chatting with you and like hearing it, I think was valuable to you of like, when we do, we don't want to raise large core funds like the kindergarten fund too now is is just about 12 million we might take it a little bigger but not you know that's the scale that makes sense i think this spv vehicle you know will end up doing i think we're when all is said and done here we're just wrapping up some loose ends it'll be roughly about the same size as the whole fund you know double digit millions are close to it that we're investing in in vanta here you know i don't need to charge a management fee on that we don't need to charge 30% 30% carry on that. You know, we don't even need to charge 20% carry on that for our large LPs. Like, so I hope to you that like that's compelling, right? Like and different. It it's compelling at a at a lot of different layers. And so I think about your business when 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 we're and your motivations when we are partnering with you. And when I see that 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 kindergarten is it's really play for you what is work for others, which is another way of kind of you saying your margin, your fee structure is my opportunity. You've mentioned a couple of times that you're not a professional investor in the traditional sense. And that's, that's core to my, my thesis, which is the service that you are providing here, connecting me as an LP to Vanta as a company that, that I get to invest in. 
as I put myself in your seat and I see how you're interacting with Vanta, the way that you are growing the surface area and acquired for them to really get the full benefit of a partnership with you guys. And then when I, when we start to talk about, you know, okay, they, they opened their round, which this is maybe another thing I should have mentioned earlier. As I've been asking people, Hey, what do you think of Vanta? We have an opportunity to invest. People have said, Oh my gosh, like that's a really tight, highly sought after. Like, how did you get into? To, to Vanta. And then I say, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's through, it's through David Rosenthal. And then everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like everybody loves David. And I <laughs> think, yes, that is, that is the Your business. Checks in the mail. That it's is great. the business that I, that I, that I want to invest in. And so, so I understand why it is that Christina opens the door for you to lead an SPV. And then when you and I are talking about what I need to do my job well, which is bringing thoughtful investments that fit specific needs that meet criteria whereby I can point and say, here's where we're adding value for you to be so flexible on fees the way that you have. It really helps me feel like I'm, I'm doing my job as a, as an institutional investor. I mean, I think that one of the really a lot of the lessons that I, I feel like I, I learned now is on the allocator side of the table came from our, our mutual friends over at Mitimco, especially Nate Chesley and, and Nav Harikumar. And, and they, they, they focus a lot on fees because over the fullness of time, fees really do matter. And so in this, oh, in this situation yeah. where both management fee and carry, precisely, like they both matter. And, and, and carry more than, but, um, you know, over a number of years, if you're charging 3% management fee for 10 years, that's 30% of the fund. Yes. And so for, for me then to be able to go and articulate this investment to others as, I mean, we're, we're not paying a management fee. We're paying probably half of the carry. If you're talking, you know, just spreadsheet math of, okay, let's, let's call this a 20, let's, you know, hopefully be, <laughs> I don't know what conservative is, but uh, you know, hopefully we can do better than a 20% gross return here, but let's just for math's sake, say 20% gross return. If I'm invested in a two and 20 fund structure, then my take home is going to be about 14%. And the way that you and I and, and Nat have, have set this up, our take home here is going to be 18%, 400 basis points of differential performance in the context of co-investing with a fund like Kraft and Sequoia and YC. Maybe to hopefully tie it all together a little more. This is why I'm so excited, uh, b- both excited about like kind of the opportunity that we like hazily saw for kindergarten and it coming together, but also why I was so passionate. W- Once Acquired became a real business and I was like, oh, wow, I, I love doing this. That's just amazing. And like, this can be my livelihood and I don't need to play the same game anymore. When you're in the traditional venture firm world structure, you know, certainly I won't deny there's an element of greed that goes into, you know, the high management fees and carry and building assets under management and all that. Like undeniably there is greed associated with that writ large. I'm not saying any you know, individual people in VC are greedy, but like it's just in aggregate, like incentives drive behavior. Right. But there's another reason though why all this happens, which is like you're tr- when you're trying to build a firm to compete in the zero sum game of being one of the best firms to lead the rounds, have the opportunity to lead rounds in the best founders and best companies out there, which is a zero sum game and you have to beat the other people. There's all this artifice building that goes into it of which your terms with your LPs are actually part of it. Like being able to say like, you know, 
to yourself, to your LPs, to founders, to others, having it known in the ecosystem of like, we charge premium carry because we're that good, of which all the top firms do. There's an element of the like firm building in there too. And, you know, and the management fees are part of that, you know, the office, the multiple offices, you know, the big staffs, all that just like, you know, again, there's nothing wrong with that. Like that's the way the traditional ecosystem works. I think that's fine thriving. I don't think we're going to disrupt it. <laughs> we're going to be complimentary for sure. Having done all that, I just didn't want to do it anymore. I was like, no, <laughs> do not want that in my life anymore. Um, so it's just so cool to be able to do this, you know, in a different way. Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to, to mention here is this is the first time that that I've invested in my career, like which is say like over the last year, this is the first time where I've had liquidation preferences as a feature for investments. So when you have a software business that can grow very efficiently to several million dollars of recurring revenue, when you're investing as this round is, is put together in, in the preferred equity, you have a liquidation preference so that as long as the company sells for north of the money raised, that you, you get a full return the of The total dollars raised, yeah. Yes, I was a public hedge fund manager for 11 years. Every stock that I ever <laughs> bought absolutely had the potential that it would go down the very next day. Right. And that I would imagine if you had that feature in the public markets where you could invest in whatever, you know, XYZ security and be like, I'm only playing for the upside. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, 99% probability, you know, my basis is not going to go below 100% in this investment. <laughs> it's very liberating for me as a as an investor that can go out and I think a lot about my job as being something of like a bartender or a butcher, like my job is to deliver the best product for the right solution. I mean, I'm helping other people achieve their goals. And so I need to be considerate of what their risk tolerances are, what their sophistication might be. Having the liquidation preference in this spot where I can I can help. And a lot of the families I work with are 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 more legacy in nature. So this will end up being some of the first software technology exposure that they have. I care very much that this is a good experience and having the ability to say, all right, you know, this company is is being priced at 10, 20, 30 times revenue. And I think that we can earn a nice return on that. But in the event that, you know, the forecast doesn't pan out the way that we're hoping, the downside is really, really limited. And again, that's something that's, I think, very unique to software businesses, where when they're successful, they are so economically successful, that the amount of money, the total dollars raised is such a small amount relative to the, you know, intrinsic value of 80% recurring revenue business. And it's really then, I think, for me, as I've, as I've been trying to think about ways to navigate a private investing program, I think that A, this is a feature that I, I, I will continue to, to seek out, but B, it really distorts pricing. And as you have more capital come into, it, yes, we have had a, a bit of a, of a reset from a fund flows perspective, but the secular trend, like as more dollars, more institutional dollars come into the theme of software eating the world. And as these liquidation preferences are in place, the price, the way that, like you said, if this was a public investment, how would you price the can't lose money? And then what's the upside? It really gets distorted. And it doesn't seem like something that's fully taken into consideration in, in, in the market. You know, when companies. No, it's, it's very, oh, it's fun. Let's jam on this a little yeah. bit. This is one of those like uh, secrets hiding in plain sight that, yeah, I don't think it's talked about enough. 
I'd hoped we might go there. And the interview we did with uh, Howard and Andrew Marks uh, that came out a little bit ago on Acquired when I asked them about like, especially Howard about, uh, you know, differences between public market investing and uh, which is a highly efficient market and all that and private market investing. I was hoping we would touch on this feature of at least venture private market investing. But yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like the concept of preferred equity is to my mind a huge reason why there are outsized returns to be had in private market investing versus public market investing. Now, access is is a bigger one for sure. Privileged information rights is a, you know, all of that is true, but this this is certainly a piece of the puzzle for me. Like if you if you step back and you think about you know, for like me personally in my own activities and and you as an LP, like why do I feel good about committing you know large portions of my net worth and my time and energy to investing in private market you know technology companies versus public market technology companies which you know have many of the same features of like still you know in in cases be plenty of upside left infinite liquidity all of that this is one of the features that is is a, a big feather in the cap for private market investing it definitely is it's been peculiar to me that it it hasn't been talked about as a distorting factor in valuations. I've been digging into this more recently. Like I was going down a Twitter rabbit hole, just, you know, searching liquidation preference and other similar terms to, to, to see how people are, are talking about this. You know, a lot of the secondary platforms like Forge, you know, pricing common and preferred equity, they end up trading way closer in price to, to one another than, than I would expect. When companies go public, there, there almost always is a, is a, you know, as as going public, the the preferred converts into common. So I I, I understand that 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 point of convergence does. Well, there exist. is also, you know, depending on the scenario, like it's on paper, the benefits of this to the investor are larger than they actually are because it only applies to an M and A scenario. If a company were to go public, then the preference gets wiped away. So you actually, I've seen this way back in the early days of my venture career of like, you can get a management team and an investor base at strong odds (laughs) of um, incentives here where like if a company, if a management team thinks that they can take up, say they've, you've raised money at a valuation that is no longer reasonable. You're, you know, whatever the intrinsic valuation of the company should be much lower. If the management team thinks that they could actually get an IPO through and get public and get liquid, their strong incentive is to do that versus to sell the company, even at the equivalent price, especially at the equivalent price, because you sell the company, the investors get a much larger share of their proceeds because of the preference you go public the preference gets wiped at everybody shares equally. Yes. Yeah. And I think that, that that's something that you certainly have to express a view here is so Vanta is raised at a $1.6 billion valuation. If they go public and the, the price is less than that, then you don't have the protections of that liquidation preference. So then as an investor, I'm asking myself, like, what are the series of next best alternatives that Christina might have? Does this company go public in a variety of of, of worlds where they are under a $1.6 billion valuation, which is basically just a, <laughs> at the end of the day, like, is there enough gas in this tank that I'm pretty confident that we can get within the next couple of years to that, to that threshold? I, I very much believe that 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 they that they will but i think that as more capital comes into 
earlier stage technology-enabled assets, and I look at myself as a Sherpa kind of fostering those, those flows, having the liquidation preference is, is really helpful. What are downsides of, of having liquidation preferences? I mean, does this end up operating something like debt in an organization? I don't think functionally. I mean, well, we should talk about ratchets in a sec here. But I think for a standard liquidation preference like this, you know, look, like I said, I've seen it in my career where you can get a company in a management team, common shareholders at odds with preferred shareholders over, uh, you know, companies viable, but not as viable as thought. And in that case, it was a it was a very capital intensive company that had raised a lot of money. Again, never say never, right? Like I'm sure this will happen in in cases and has happened. But in a software company, it's pretty hard because it's not the valuation that matters that matters with the liquidation preference. It's the amount of capital raised. So, like, let's take Vanta here. You know, let's round numbers. Let's say it'll all in be about 200 million that they've raised. That's the preference stack. Whether the valuation was. 500 million or 1.6 billion as it actually is in this round or 3 billion or 5 billion or whatever like that that doesn't matter it's getting the money the dollars back to the investors so like for argument's sake let's say vanta had raised at 5 billion dollar valuation but only had 500 million that it had raised or company x 5 billion dollar valuation had raised 500 million dollars total of capital if the company had an opportunity to exit for 1 billion that's you know obviously way lower than the valuation but in an M&A exit but the investors would get their 500 million of capital back so you know like for software companies that just that scale so efficiently as you say it's not like that big a deal ratchets are what's interesting and this i wonder if we'll start to see this coming back this had happened in the sort of mid 20 teens era where people were unsure about you know the economy inflation a little bit back then and square is the most famous example their last one or two private rounds at square had you know raised with these dynamics we're talking about but the extra feature of a ratchet and what a ratchet is is, is basically saying this dynamic applies both in an ipo and in MA. so liquidation preference is usually you know just M&A, if you go public, the, the preference gets wiped out. But a ratchet says, no, no, it's, it stays. So if you were to go public at a lower valuation than this round, investors essentially, you, they get their money back through a variety of mechanisms. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think that that's what I'm probably most looking forward to about, about this you know, ongoing and continuing phase of the the capital formation cycle is just as a as a practitioner learning about the features that that come and go over time, and increasingly kind of using those as tools and as ways of also charting like where we are in 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 this capital cycle. I think it's going to be really interesting. And it's interesting, you know, the ratchets got a really bad rap in that era. And I'm not exactly sure why, you know, if you think through it, like, as objectively as possible. Early stage investors hated them, which I think is why they got a bad rap. Because if you're an early stage investor in a company like this, let's take Square, for example, that ratchet can really hurt you. It can cause you to suffer a lot more dilution at the IPO, which you're already probably not happy about dilution at the IPO, but you'll suffer even more because of a ratchet. And so I think a lot of early stage investors, you know, got very vocal about hating them uh, back then. But like anything, it's a term, it's a feature, right? Like, uh, and you're providing further downside protection to a new investor in exchange for a combination of a higher valuation and, and 
more importantly, more concretely, probably more capital uh, getting put into the business. So I'm not sure it's actually that bad. You know, and the management team kind of sits somewhere in the middle. If you want to go deeper, we can discuss their motivations too. <laughs> it just depends on the circumstances, right? Like the specifics matter in terms of where the business is, what that marginal dollar might accomplish if if raised. And then also like, I think one of the things I really like here is, and I've heard this from, from some investors that have partnered with Fanta, where they like to be involved because they think that Christina is going to be a founder that has multiple acts in her, which I don't know you know, whether that, that, that has basis or not. But the point being that her next best alternatives, like I, I think, I think a lot about next best alternatives, like what is, what does that look like for her? It's going to be a very high bar that she has to continue to put her life's work into Vanta. And so I feel like when it gets to a point that she might think that doing something else is more attractive, getting the highest value and, and having that be a data informed decision that happens earlier rather than later, I think is something that, that when I go into thinking about who the people are that are involved, their next best alternative is a really key input for what I think that they might do in the future. Mm. Yep. Great. Do you want to move on to grading? Oh, yeah. <laughs> How do you want to grade this? <laughs> well, I think it needs to be forward looking. What does really bad look like? So really bad, you know, an, an F is that th this category that Vanta... <laughs> Everything we were just talking about actually becomes uh, relevant, which I, I really think is unlikely. <laughs> I think that it is as well. But I kind of want to do this. I want to do this for posterity's sake, because as a professional hedge fund manager for a long time, my like pre-mortems and post-mortems looked like translating Hebrew to Chinese. Like the unknown unknowns were so often the kind of dominant fundamental factor that I should have been paying attention to. So I think for me, there's a there's some posterity value in in doing this. So like what does really bad look like from here? So really bad looks like well, maybe we'll go back to the Jeffrey Moore mindset. So at an infrastructure level, I have a hard time manufacturing risks at a software eating the world level. Where the risks start to manifest is creating the category doesn't mean that you continue to own it. In fact, it attracts a lot of competitors and some of the competitors are very strong. And also there are large behemoths that control a lot of data and workflow adjacent to uh, Vanta. And so there are scenarios where growth slows dramatically and it ends up being a, a public comp kind of valuation of something in kind of the, the four to six times revenue multiple. I think that fortunately for, for Vanta, a slower growth environment would likely result in the, the company having pretty good cash flow margins. There is downside absolutely to that $1.6 billion valuation. Is there downside to the 200, 250? No, I think that that's, Capital that's hard raised, to, yeah. uh, to get there. To your point though, also about that, uh, it's a little bit of a sidebar, but I just learned something the other day that blew my mind, which is that to your point about large incumbents, the software companies, you know, might want to enter a space. Microsoft, I learned about a, a new software, a new product, cloud software, you know, application software product from Microsoft that they launched 18 months ago that is now doing one and a half billion dollars in annualized revenue. And I was just like, holy crap, like that's crazy oh, that is so crazy impressive that microsoft you know can still do that and does that and like man 
so awesome. And you well, know, it's Microsoft 10 years ago probably wasn't doing that. But like, uh, oh, it's just, yes, of course it's distribution that does that. But just that like. But their ability to, to, to see, it's like the Eye of Saruman in Lord of the Rings. Like to see that opportunity and be like, mine, one and a half billion dollars of ARR <laughs> and no time flat. It is a very challenging part of, of investing in an ecosystem driven internet services world. So I was very bullish on, on Slack. And it was it was actually I think one of the few private investments that we made at the fund where I worked. But we you know we were users and we just we loved it so much. It transformed. Talk about a system of engagement. But holy hell, Teams Microsoft's ability to pour water on on the Slack fire was was really remarkable. And I think that that's that's a piece here that I uh, I feel a little bit more comfortable just given the nature of this being an aggregation layer and and very few companies are mono cloud. And and so as long as that digital estate has a lot of heterogeneity, as long as you have Azure, AWS, GCP, a suite of cloud services that go into building your infrastructure. Like I think that that this is relatively insulated from the the big scary platform competitors. What does a middling uh, outcome look like? I mean, I think they continue to to grow at a you know north of 100% rate for the next year or so, but then that stair steps down to maybe 50% or so in, in two years. I think we're the middle no. ground. From <laughs> I don't think we actually said throughout the company, like, I won't say the actual numbers, but the revenue growth rate in the ARR growth rate for Avanta is unbelievably impressive. <laughs> truly, truly top tier. One of the best like I've, I've seen in my whole career, uh, which is awesome. So that's another feather in the company's cap. It is. As businesses you know grow so quickly, the bar for exceptional growth, I think it just it just has to go up. As you think about continuing to refine your investment thesis for the environment that you're operating in, I mean, I remember when I first got into software, like a rule of 40 company was really good. So rule of 40 means recurring revenue growth plus the cash flow margin that they're able to earn. Vanta is, you know, rule of well into the triple digits, um, which is well into the triple digits. Yes. <laughs> which is exciting. I think that having that be a, a, a durably high number and, and that, and that really being a function of a data informed decision that, that is making those return oriented investments into the business and having a forced rank way of prioritizing capital. You know, like this is really a capital allocation exercise that Christina and team are, are working towards. But in any case, for, for a middling outcome, I think that they continue to, to dominate in, in SOC 2. They find ways of appending the SOC 2 product with you know, some PCI compliance, maybe some HIPAA, Sarbanes-Oxley. Like, I think that that, that, that piece for me is going to be really important right now. Their net retention rate is, is good, but I want to see it improve over the coming quarters. I think that that will be a yeah, function. They don't of, have a good expansion product flow. It's kind of like you buy Manta. The expansion is you add more compliance certificates. You know, it's not a usage based expansion right now. Which, as you say, you know, can be a double-edged sword in a in a tough environment, you know. But generally, usage-based expansion is great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think that the middling uh, situation is where they they kind of stay in the system of record world. They have some expansion, but not a lot in 
three years, it's 200 and something million dollars. And you, you know, you probably get to that $1.6 billion valuation. Maybe, maybe you can get kind of a 15, 20% return from here. And it's just, you know, it's a, it's a fine investment. And what I would say also, though, is, is something challenging right now is when you have dislocation in the market, there are lots of purchase decisions you could make right now that might look like exceptional investments. So the bar is pretty high on a, on a relative basis. Again, bringing in that, that liquidation preference really does kind of help justify the investment, even in the case where it's something of a middling outcome. What does an A look like here? An A looks like standing up compliance automation as a major pillar within the digital estate. So something like a CRM or a service management like what ServiceNow has built or, or even observability like, like Datadog is in the process of, of building out. In that scenario, you end up ingesting upstream processes, creating a visualization and engagement layer that really hones in on the core, you know, risk profile of a business. And I want to add one thing like that really could get me super excited for that A plus is when I think about like, what's the information that exists in a business that could really tell me something about its DNA, about its culture, about its likelihood to execute and win large markets. It does have to do with, with like the insight that Vanta captures. And, and so if they can find ways of translating the data that they're ingesting into something of a communication to the outside world about what that company is, kind of almost along the lines of like what an S&P or a Moody's do for assessing financial stability. If Vanta can become a way of communicating operational stability and excellence, I think that there is all a sundry of ways of creating and capturing value. And that $100 billion company in that world is not out of the question. So that's the thing that like when I'm daydreaming, which I do sometimes, that is how... I love the way you phrased it earlier. It's just, I think it really is a great way to capture what you're talking about is can... Vanta cross the chasm from a system of record to a system of engagement. If they can do that, yes, like you're like this is a the system of engagement around security, compliance, and data, data security monitoring is going to be an enormous market. <laughs> Again, with the usual caveat of like I can't be sure about anything anymore, but like, but I'm pretty sure that that's going to be an enormous market. Yes. All right, listeners, thank you for joining us on this episode. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.